Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the not-so-slow transformation of Republicans from a Bush-McCain-Romney sort of party to a Trump-DeSantis-Putin sort of party, complete with cultish devotion and dependence on near-total dismissal of truth, replaced by propaganda. Clips today are from The Rachel Maddow Show, The Slate Political Gabfest, The Al Franken Podcast, The Bradcast, The Mehdi Hassan Show, Vox, and All In with Chris Hayes, and with additional members-only clips from The Brian Lehrer Show and In the Thick. ask you about um, this this issue that you write about in your book and other uh, historians talk about, and that is that there is something about American exceptionalism, about the, the the strength of belief that Americans have in themselves, which is a little bit different from from patriots in other countries, that doesn't allow us to see fundamental fall of flaws or faults like the one that you described. There's something that doesn't want us to believe that what we saw a year ago was actually an attack on democracy. Yeah, Americans have always been very invested in the idea of America as a beacon of freedom, and it has been for so many immigrants who have come here. But there's a whole other side to American engagement with democracy, such as all the coups uh, during the Cold War, the juntas that uh, the United States, you know, propped up and helped to, to happen. It's taken away democracy from countries. And what's so poignant about that is right now we're living through a very serious assault on democracy. And some of the people involved in that, Trump and Roger Stone and Bannon and Paul Manafort, these are people with decades of experience in wrecking democracies and propping up dictatorships and funding dictators in the case of Trump's money laundering. And so Trump, the, it's been a huge wake-up call. And, you know, because I study fascism, I saw very early who Trump was. And I wrote Strongman because I wanted to uh, let my fellow Americans know that it can happen here, that over history, many other cultures and peoples have been very amazed that it happened to them, <clears throat> and that Trump was not going to leave um, quietly because he was using an autocratic rather than a democratic playbook to govern. Let me ask you about the language we use here. You talk about it being a wake-up call, but not everybody's woken up yet. I want to quote from your book in which you say, <laughs> for a political system that affects the lives of so many, authoritarianism remains a surprisingly fuzzy concept. We still lack a common language to speak about the governments of the 21st century authoritarian rulers who repress civil liberties but use elections to keep themselves in power. There are many Americans today who will say there's nothing wrong with our democracy. We have elections. We will continue to have elections. Yeah, the problem with that is, uh, and we can look to Viktor Orban, who Tucker Carlson and the GOP, even Mike Pence, they're all trotting over to Budapest. Uh, today, you don't normally ban elections. That's less common. You hold elections and you fix them, like the ruler of Kazakhstan and Belarus and Putin. So you can say you are, uh, like Orban calls his state, an illiberal democracy. Well, there's not much democratic about it. But this is what's, of course, happening now at the level of the states. The GOP is uh, assaulting our election mechanism. But this idea that you can still say you're a democracy, you leave a pocket of opposition. So we are in this period of time where many states are in a transition between democracy and autocracy. 
And some people use the word electro-autocracy. Some people use the word anocracy to use. Some people call the United States that after January 6th. So uh, we do, we're still searching for a language because authoritarianism is itself in transition. I want to read something else uh, that I think is interesting from your book, because one of the discussions that we have is how we have this conversation with people who do not believe what you are saying to be the truth. You write that the decay of truth and democratic dissolution proceed hand in hand, starting with the insurgents assertion that the establishment media delivers false or biased information while he speaks the truth and risks everything to get the real facts out. Once his supporters bond to this person, they stop caring about his falsehoods. This may be where we are with a good portion of Americans right now. Yeah, and Trump did this right away. And, um, you know, I have a, a picture in my book about with of Hitler with his mouth taped shut because there was a speaking ban on Hitler in Weimar, Germany, because of his hate speech. And the Nazi party made political capital out of that, calling him a victim. So victimhood is very important to the strongman uh, profile. And the whole thing with Trump right now is that he is a very able propagandist, a very able storyteller who is always the victim. And so this very compelling story of him as the leader, the, the hero, the savior of the nation who's been wronged, that something that's rightfully his, the election has been stolen from him. And he's he's trying to tell the truth. He's always had that persona and it's been really effective at building uh, a fanatical base who are willing to go and wreck Congress for him. And I really see January 6th was a coup event. It was a milestone on a race war, but it's also an authoritarian leader cult rescue operation. Legitimate political discourse, shouted the mugger as he knocked down the old lady in the street. Legitimate political discourse, cried the school bully as he beat the snot out of a fourth grader. Legitimate political discourse, an absurdist euphemism of a phrase, a creepy bit of linguistic confusion has entered the lexicon this week. The Republican National Committee, the official arm, the official armature of the Republican Party, passed a resolution censuring two House Republican members, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, for participating in the January 6th committee and in passing this censure resolution described the committee as attempting to persecute ordinary citizens engaged in legitimate political discourse. The RNC says, no, no, what we were talking about were the, not the, not the January 6th protesters. We were talking about other people who were drawn into the dragnet of January 6th and, and you're misreading what we've said, but it is kind of what they said. Uh, but do they should should we mock them for this phrase? Well, there are a lot of things that we should be deeply concerned for about, and and there should be real heavy mocking for me. And we, you guys, poor guys, know about this because I wrote about it in the Atlantic this week. The thing to be most mocked for is the fact that Donald Trump, the person who's the leader of the Republican Party and who is likely to be the nominee, is the person that you have the leader of the Republicans in the Senate, the leader of the House Republicans. And now the vice president have all said he is thoroughly unfit for the presidency by the actions he took while he was president. Mike Pence last week said that there was no more un-American thing than what Donald Trump wanted him to do by overturning the election. So you have the leader of a party who's going to be the next nominee who all the leaders of the party say is unfit. That's the thing that to me is the, the, the most cockamamie. With respect to the legitimate political discourse, it is 
fine in America to gather people together under the under a delusion uh, and rally and be delusional in your rally. There is legitimate political discourse in a campaign. You have debates, you have rallies, you have a lot of big conversation and everybody settles that legitimate political discourse with a vote. We should note that what they were trying to do is overturn that vote. You're not in great territory. You're also not in great territory when the leader of your party was inciting that riot. That's not me talking. That's Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy said he incited that riot. So when you have the leader of your party inciting a riot, it gets really hard to slice the bologna so thin that you say, the thing I'm most concerned about is the name we attach to the people who were just at the rally under this delusion, not the people at the rally who were using fire extinguishers to attack police officers. Like as a political matter, you can't slice the bologna that thin. So, Emily, John is mentioning that the political leadership, Mitch McConnell this week, did condemn this resolution and and repeated the truth that January 6th was a violent attempt to overturn the legitimate election. Mike Pence uh, said that Trump was wrong. Uh, can you imagine how hard it must have been to say those three words, Trump is wrong? Um, but these are party mandarins. Like, can, can these institutionalists, do these institutionalists actually have any sway in their party? I mean, I think the answer is no. That's why we had this censure. That's why we had this language. And I mean, okay, mock, but this is actually like really alarming, like really grim for the country that this is where we are, that a year on one of the parties is in its entirety and some of its leadership totally committed to just pretending this didn't happen in some way that was dangerous and celebrating and lifting up Donald Trump. And it doesn't matter how many lies he tells about this. It doesn't matter how much obfuscating, like they're all part of it. And they're just pretending that this, you know, really scary event did not have the meaning that it so obviously had. And this what's politically crazy about what the RNC did was it seems to me that 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 the Republican strategy was to let J January 6th be in the past. It was a bad day, but that was long ago. And Joe Biden's messing everything up and elect us in the future because we're going to make things better. And who who put January 6th back on the map? Donald Trump, who continues to say that Mike Pence could have done something, saying it so much and so regularly that Pence felt he had to speak out. Again, as David pointed out, that must have been somewhat difficult, given that Mike Pence has been the most loyal person and has in many previous instances where it obviously was a chance to speak out, hasn't. And then secondly, you have the RNC raising this out of the blue. Uh, also, they were doing they were wrapping the knuckles of Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney, the two members of Congress on the January 6th commission. That was the other thing they did was censure them for not acting in the in the standards of, of Republican members of Congress. So they, these are unforced errors. And January 6th is being rediscussed in current terms. So they're not just trying to forget it. They're basically but, trying to rewrite what happened. But are you so sure that it's an error? I mean, why? I, there is this conviction that oh, this is a, this is an unforced error. This is a known goal. Why would they bring this up? They've coined this phrase, legitimate political discourse. I don't know. I mean, just it like feels like we're we're at a stage in American politics where there are no errors anymore because everyone is so tribal. It, so no matter what you do, your tribe is on your side. Well, absolutely true. I think you're. I think you're exactly right. I think the idea that um, that that what used to hurt you in the past relied on the maintenance of norms of a, a variety of people we've seen don't maintain those norms. I do think it is a different situation where you have the leader of the Republicans in the Senate calling out 
basically the leader of the Republican Party. That is new. You also have splits in the party where you have the the Republican Governors Association running ads on behalf of Brian Kemp, the incumbent Georgia governor, against David Perdue, who's running against him in a primary. And part of the reason the, the, the National Gubernatorial Committee has to support its own person against another Republican, which is which is I think never happened before, is because Donald Trump is supporting David Perdue. And there, these are tensions within the party, um, which are causing upset. And the reason they're causing upset in the Senate race is because there are a bunch of races in places uh, like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin where Mitch McConnell is worried that a party that gets defined as too thoroughly in the Donald Trump camp will actually lose in those states where where the electorate is not Holy tribal. So is that why McConnell spoke out? And is that like an effective move for him to make at this point? Like, is it enough? Is it anywhere near enough? I mean, I think that is why he spoke out. I think it's a signal which he has to keep sending about making sure that Republicans nominate people who can win in those competitive states. So it's not that it changes, but it's a it's a signal to the political insiders. Um and you saw a number of other senators speak out as well, including Uncle Mitt Romney, who is um, the uncle to the uh, head of the Republican Party, Ron McDaniel, which was a very um, – must have been an interesting text chain, the family text chain. Uh, but um, – so I, I – whether it's effective, I don't know. But yes, it's in the context of that – of those – places where it's where the races won't be determined wholly by the strength of the Republican Party. Of course, McConnell can't get too far out because he obviously needs, you know, the the Republican base to show up too. Um, although what we call the Republican base is a shifting thing. I mean, there is this desire. I can't like there's some people who want Republican Party that is Trump. That's most of Republicans want a Republican Party, where, which is led by Trump. Then there's a bunch of people who want Trumpism without Trump because they feel that Trump is toxic. And then there's an increasingly tiny group of people who want neither Trumpism nor Trump and for the Republican Party to, you know, which is Mitch McConnell. I mean, not Mitch McConnell, Mitt Romney, uh, Mitt Romney and, and a few friends of his. Like, so our choices are a Republican Party, which, which is in the thrall of, of Trumpism. That is our only choice. And then the question is, can you have it with or without Trump? And I guess my hope is that they can somehow find a way to do it without Trump. But it doesn't doesn't look likely at this moment. I would just add one other thing about McConnell. He wants every conversation to be about inflation, crime, the border, and Joe Biden. Have the entire election be, and all the political wins are at his back. So anything that changes the conversation to anything having to do with Donald Trump, who energizes the Democratic Party, is a conversation he doesn't want to have happen. In your book, I, uh, you just have this line of assholes that you profile <laughs> and their role in all of this. And it's uh, Limbaugh, Rush Limbaugh, of course, Sean Hannity, mm -hmm. uh, Pat Buchanan, who at least could mm -hmm. be kind of fun to be with, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, he's not, you know, uh, Roger Ailes, um, a monster, but also kind of charming. Yeah. So, I mean, sociopaths are often uh, quite charming. Then you have some uh, sort of less well-known uh, assholes, you know, the guy from uh, Operation Veritas. What's his name? Right. Yeah. James O'Keefe. James O'Keefe. Just a whole 
slew of these guys. Uh, you know, Alex Jones, mm-hmm. Steve Bannon, Glenn Beck, and Coulter Tucker Carlson. <laughs> if you keep going, no one's going to want to read this book. <laughs> Newt Gingrich. Well, no, it's all uh, it's all like a trip down Nightmare Lane. Giuliani, uh, Stephen Miller gets shows mm-hmm. up. Breitbart, uh, Karl Rove, uh, Roger Stone, mm-hmm. and of course you kind of start with Sarah Palin. And what's fascinating about this is is it's just how the Republican Party just got taken over by these insurgents, and it's their party now, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, every one of those people you name through, for the most part, were kind of at the periphery of the conservative movement in the Republican Party. I mean, these were not people who were invited to speak at Mitt Romney's Republican National Convention. And they were dismissed and they were laughed at and and, and disrespected to a large degree by the Republican leadership. And that was a really important part of their political identity and uh, created a real galvanizing sentiment, I think, among a lot of them uh, and why they identified with Trump, because Trump is ultimately somebody who is not ideological. He's driven solely by his grievance and his desire for revenge. And it's something I get into in the chapter. I'm glad you mentioned Roger Ailes, because there's a scene which has long been like lost to the, uh, the, the into the void of canceled cable news shows. But Roger Ailes, when he was president of CNBC, gave himself a talk show and he had all sorts of interesting. I was on that on. talk show, believe it or not. Were you really? That's amazing. Isn't it amazing? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he put, consider yourself flattered because he picked really interesting people to be on that show. And one of them was Donald Trump. Uh, you probably don't enjoy being in that company, but like in, in 1995, of course, Donald Trump was a was a, not a political figure, but he in many ways was the same type of grievance oriented character that he is now. And Roger says to him, you know, I don't get it, Donald, like these these construction workers, the road crews, they say, hey, Donald, you know, how, how are you doing? We love you. And you're this millionaire from Manhattan. How does that work? And Trump's answer is as resonant today as it was back then. He says, well, it's because the rich people, they're the ones that don't like me. So what Trump was doing there is that, you know, he identified that it's it's not just about his appeal. It's about who people think hates him. And, and it's about his enemies as much as it is uh, anything in, in his own personal character that people find appealing. Oh, man. I shouldn't say I hate him then. <laughs> that gives him fuel. You know what's, what's interesting? I mean, basically, what the, the arc of this book is how the party became the Trump party. And if you think about who the nominees and a couple presidents, a couple Bush presidents, uh, who the nominees for the Republican Party were since, mm-hmm. uh, you know, 88, H.W., uh, then you you profile Buchanan, who challenged H.W. Uh, in 92. Mm-hmm. But then it was Bob Dole. Mm-hmm. Then it was George uh, W. Bush. Then it was McCain. <laughs> <laughs> and then it was Romney. And those were what we used to think of, of when we thought of Republicans. Mm-hmm. And then it was Trump. 
And that was so. What you're doing right there, and you would have no way of knowing this, but you're actually spelling out the idea that formed my book proposal. I was having lunch with a well-known Republican strategist who worked for all of those people except for Trump, who you just named, uh, over the years, including he worked he worked with Roger Ailes, uh, and he said to me, you know, one of the things that we're going to be puzzling over for years is looking at that line of. Republican nominees, Bush, Bush, McCain, Romney, and who? And I felt that that, that, that question, the, the, the who, how, like, how did it get to this guy? Explain this, because 25 years from now, when people are in, in grade schools are looking at the wall uh, and the portraits of the presidents above the chalkboard there, Donald Trump's picture is going to still be there, and there's going to be a, a a lot of explaining to do about how we got to that point because it looks like such an anomaly. And what my book tries to argue is that Trump wasn't an anomaly in the Republican Party. He was actually kind of the soul of it for the last 25, 30 years, starting with a guy like Buchanan who ran in 92 on a lot of the ideas that Trump ended up running. Yeah. And if you think about it now, Romney is the anomaly. Mm Mm-hmm. And and basically, this has always been there. This has always yes. been, and and the roots are in the Tea Party. But it's also, I mean, you talk about Limbaugh mm-hmm. about about how he got this. I think you wrote a book about him, didn't you? Yes, uh, uh, um, or he was in the title at least. Well, no, it was about. It was largely about this. It was funny. I wrote that in ninety five. It's called that Rush means- Limbaugh's a Big Fat Idiot and Other Observations. <laughs> Uh, and basically my thesis was that, uh, he's spreading a lot of disinformation and that's dangerous. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. I could have grabbed from the book, from, from your book, it, because what it's true, the, the, what Limbaugh called, as you well know, the, the four corners of deceit on his radio show, you know, academia, government, science, and the media. I mean, that was conditioning his audience for years and years not to trust authority and knowledge. And so we shouldn't at all be surprised by the time we get to 2020 and Trump says, they're stealing this from you, the, the media, the Democratic Party. Uh, it's, it's, it's all a big conspiracy. They had been hearing that kind of stuff for years. They've been hearing it was a hoax from Trump for ever since he started running for president. And he uh, even before that, when he claimed that the, the Emmys were rigged because he'd never been nominated for an Emmy for The Apprentice. I think Trump is was, was speaking there to like this this sense that people who, who identified with conservative movement politics, who identified with the Republican Party, but not exclusively with the Republican Party, felt like they were one presidential election away from losing their purchase on cultural, political, and social power in this country. And they thought that for a variety of reasons. You know, And, that, and that election was Obama. <laughs> yeah, that election was Obama, right? Yeah. That's exactly That right. freaked them um, out, boy. That freaked them out. Well, yeah, it, it, it really did. I mean, and you know, because, you know, you, you, you served with John McCain and McCain is an interesting figure in the book because what I report that hasn't really been out there before is the extent to which the McCain campaign was actually using the grievances and the anger out there in, in a way to in a way that they crafted Sarah Palin's words 
for her. Sarah Palin, when McCain chose her, she took a dark turn because the McCain people not only allowed her to do it, they wrote those words into her script, including the most famous line, I think, that she ever uttered during that campaign, that Obama was, quote, palling around with terrorists. That came from the McCain campaign headquarters. And I think that would surprise everyone because you don't think of Steve Schmidt, who was running that campaign, and you don't think of McCain stooping to that. But they did. But they did, right? (laughs) I mean, it's a complicated part of his legacy because for all that he was, you know, a war hero who, who, you know, stood up against the the Bush administration's use of terrorism um, and and, and somebody who ran as a maverick himself against the, the establishment Republican Party. It's a complicated legacy because ultimately the choice of Sarah Palin was on him and he he let this happen. We depend heavily on memberships to fund the production of this show because having principles in the attention economy is bound to cost you. And that's definitely been the case for us. When the company that was selling ads for us way back demanded that we allow our listeners to be tracked and hyper-targeted with manipulative ads, we refused because we find that to be blatantly unethical and in many countries illegal when it's done without the ability to opt in or out, which is the case for all podcasts. Now, because many advertisers have gotten used to being able to hyper-target podcast listeners through other less scrupulous shows, they're less willing to advertise with integrity on shows like ours. This has really been squeezing our finances and making every single supporting member we have that much more critical to our ability to produce this show. If you are a member, thank you once again. If you want to support the work we do, please consider becoming a member at bestofleft.com slash support. If you'd like to advertise with integrity to our audience while protecting everyone's privacy, you can reach me directly at j at bestofleft.com. Thanks, as always, for your support. Former Vice President Mike Pence directly rebutted Donald Trump's false claim that he somehow could have overturned the results of the 2020 election, saying that the former president was simply, quote, wrong. It was a speech to a gathering of the far-right Republican Federalist Society down in Florida. Pence addressed Trump's intensifying efforts this past week to advance the false narrative that as vice president, he had the lawful, constitutional, unilateral power to somehow uh, prevent Joe Biden from taking office, to somehow decide who the president would be all by himself. But there are those in our party who believe that as the presiding officer over the joint session of Congress, that I possess unilateral authority to reject electoral college votes. And I heard this week that President Trump said I had the right to overturn the election. But President Trump is wrong. I had no right to overturn the election. The presidency belongs to the American people and the American people alone. And frankly, there is no idea more un-American than the notion that any one person could choose the American president. Under the Constitution, I had no right to change the outcome of our election. And Kamala Harris will have no right to overturn the election when we beat them in 2024. (laughs) Now, uh, here is something I don't often say. 
Good for Mike Pence. Now, we talked in some detail about Congress's ongoing effort uh, underway right now to rewrite the Electoral Count Act of 1887, which Trump had misused as a, uh, a predicate, a pretext to declare that Pence somehow had the right to simply pick whoever he wanted to be the winner of the 2020 election. Uh, but it doesn't really work that way. And last week we discussed in in detail with a congressional reporter who's doing a deep dive on the Electoral Count Act and the bipartisan efforts now underway to clarify the stupid and terribly written 1887 law in the uh, now in the U.S. Senate. Uh, they're trying to rewrite it before 2024. I suspect we will be revisiting that matter in still more detail in the days ahead as AP posits. Mike Pence's declaration marked his most forceful response to yet to Trump, who has spent his post-presidency fueling the lie that the 2020 campaign was stolen from him. Trump responded uh, to Mike Pence in a statement on Friday night, once again, falsely claiming that there were, quote, obvious signs of voter fraud in the election. Despite more than a year later now, zero actual signs of any such fraud beyond beyond a, a bunch of Republicans, by the way, being found to have voted twice in several states for dead relatives, etc. Nothing, however, that could possibly be uh, used to overturn the returns in any state. Much less the uh, much less three of them that would be would have been needed at a minimum to have flipped the uh, results for to Donald Trump to somehow declare him the winner of an election that he lost by more than eight million popular votes and 74 electoral votes. As Pence countered Trump in Florida, Republicans, meanwhile, were gathering on the very same day in Utah to align themselves even more closely with the disgraced former president, the RNC censured uh, Congress members Liz Cheney of Wyoming and Adam Kinziger of Illinois for participating on the committee investigating the January 6th insurrection with the GOP assailing that panel for leading a, quote, persecution of ordinary citizens engaged in legitimate political discourse. Yes, according to the Republican Party today, not the Republican Party a year ago when they condemned what happened on January 6th, but now what happened on January 6th was just citizen engaged in legitimate political discourse. Pence, of course, was inside the Capitol on January 6th, presiding over the joint session of Congress to certify the presidential election when that legitimate political discourse consisted of a mob of Trump's supporters violently smashing their way inside, assaulting police officers, hunting down lawmakers, chanting, hang Mike Pence, among other things. But the GOP is condemning some of the most conservative previously pro-Trump members of their own party for trying to hold folks accountable for what happened on that horrible day. GOP officials took a voice vote to approve censuring Cheney and Kinzinger at the party's winter meeting in Salt Lake City. The censure was approved a day after an RNC subcommittee had actually watered down the resolution. They had recommended expelling Cheney and Kinzinger from the party entirely for daring to investigate, you know, deadly crimes and terror attacks on the U.S. Capitol. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm sorry, for legitimate political discourse on January 6th. 
Uh, the censure accuses Cheney and Kinzinger of, quote, participating in a Democrat-led persecution. But uh, GOP Senator Mitt Romney, who voted to convict Trump in both of his impeachment trials, excoriated his own party for that censure. Quote, shame falls on a party that would censure persons of conscience who seek truth in the face of vitriol. He tweeted that honor attaches to Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger for seeking truth, even when doing so comes at great personal cost. And here is something I also don't say very often. Good for Mitt Romney. The most consequential element of the censure is a call for the party to no longer support either Cheney or Kinzinger as Republicans. The censure, combined with support from RNC members from Wyoming, allows the party now to invoke a rule to back candidates other than Cheney. It sets in motion. And by the way, they only have one uh, congressperson in Wyoming. That's Liz Cheney. And now the Republicans are putting up someone to run against her in a primary uh, a woman by the name of Harriet Hageman, who has been endorsed by Trump. Wyoming's primary is in August. Cheney spokesperson Jer Jer Jeremy Adler said in a statement that the move subverted the will of Wyoming voters. But, of course, that's what Republicans do. Liz, sorry, are you just now starting to figure that part out? You have been a part of that for years, Liz Cheney, as have you, Adam Kinzinger. You both even voted against the critical election reform bills, the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act that might have prevented some of that. Some of that attack on American democracy. Kinzinger, for his part, he's not running uh, for reelection. He has essentially been run out of Congress by his own party. And because the Republican Party now really, really hates democracy and public discourse of the actually, you know, legitimate type, RNC members on Friday also voted in favor of a rule change that would prohibit their candidates from participating in debates organized by the Commission on Presidential Debates. That's right. There will be no presidential debates, apparently, at least as long as they're headed up by the Commission on Presidential Debates, which has headed them up for years. That should be particularly convenient if their nominee turns out to be one Donald J. Trump, who really, really does not like having to answer for his twisted criminal career and his attempt to blatantly steal the 2020 presidential election, including, uh, as we now know, after last week, his attempt to use the Defense Department or the Homeland Security Department or the Department of Justice to try and undermine, to try and, yes, steal the 2020 election. Uh, thankfully, he's uh, largely a failure, so he failed at that as well. But... Um, at least he did. Uh, he failed in 2020. And uh, he and his party are now working very hard to prevent screwing up that takedown of American democracy again in the future. But can you imagine if a Democratic president had tried to use the Department of Justice or the Department of Homeland Security or the Pentagon to try and steal a presidential election? The answer man among Senate Republicans today is Rick Scott. 
Yes, it's the Florida man most famous for pleading the fifth 75 times in one deposition and for giving Ron DeSantis confidence that anyone can be elected governor of Florida. But ex-governor turned Senator Rick Scott, who now leads the group responsible for getting Republicans elected to the Senate, has unveiled an 11-point campaign plan to, quote, rescue America. And if you love phony culture wars, you're in luck. Here's the plan. One, make every kid say the Pledge of Allegiance, stand for the anthem and learn that, quote, America is the greatest country in the world. Don't worry. It tackles the issues that matter, too, like, quote, a complete end to racial politics. Of course, it wouldn't be Rick Scott talking. It wouldn't be a Rick Scott talking point if it didn't mention socialism, too, which he'd like to treat as a foreign adversary and use, quote, all force to stop it from destroying our country. What does that even mean? Republicans plan to arrest Bernie Sanders at AOC. Scott says he also wants to stand up for, quote, common sense, by which he means attacking trans people and reproductive freedom, as well as finishing the border wall and naming it for Donald Trump. There are also some classic hits on this album, like Scott demanding term limits, a promise Republicans made and broke in their Newt Gingrich contract with America in the middle of Gingrich's own 20 years in Congress. Scott also wants to divest the U.S. completely from Chinese interests because, quote, I think they're part of killing 100,000 Americans last year with fentanyl. You're worried about hundreds of thousands of Americans dying unnecessarily in a year due to a cynical government's incompetence? Really? Boy, Rick Scott, have I got some wild news for you about that. Look, this is a power play by a senator with big ambitions, but it's also a clue to how the GOP sees a way forward in lieu of actual policies to improve Americans' lives. Republicans want to fuse the Trumpian crazy with establishment donor cash. They think they found an answer in the culture wars. It's an effort that also dominates CPAC, the annual conservative political action conference, which kicks off this week. Just look at the schedule of events in two hours this coming Saturday. We are not making this up. At 3.45 p.m., it's why the working class hates the Democrats with that working class hero, J.D. Vance, Yale Law School class of 2013. At 4.25, fire Fauci with Matt Gates. Don't miss Woke Inc. at 5.05. You should just get out just in time for Lock Her Up For Real with Devin Nunes. Those are real panels happening this week at CPAC which used to be the marketplace of conservative ideas. During the 2016 primaries, CPAC organizers dissed Trump on Twitter for skipping the conference. His absence sends a clear message to conservatives, they wrote. But by 2018, the act of simply criticizing Trump was enough to get conservative columnist Mona Jaron booed and escorted out of the conference. It's a shift that's been overseen by Matt Schlapp, the wealthy CPAC chairman who used to get stories written about his 30-acre weekend retreat in the Blue Ridge Mountains, but who now wants to defund PBS because Sesame Street just introduced its first Asian-American Muppet. No, really. They're trying to bring race into Ernie and Bert, which I grew up watching. I'm older than you, but I grew up watching. And it wasn't ever about race. It was about learning lessons and learning to read and learning tolerance. And they want to inject race. They just they won't stop with uh, their push for woke politics. This is it. This is conservatism in 2022. Own the libs. Smash the socialists. Destroy Sesame Street. It's a cynical marketing strategy with all the substance and charm of a Trump bumper sticker. We can laugh at how dumb it all is, but if we've learned anything in recent years, it's that American politics, American right-wing politics, can always get dumber and more dangerous.
Joining me now is David Jolly. He's a former Republican congressman who is no longer with that party. He's also chairman of the Serve America movement and an MSNBC political analyst. David, welcome back to the show. In 2020, Republicans opted not to have a party platform. Now heading into midterms, Mitch McConnell has been telling party donors that the plan is to have no plan to run against Democrats instead of running for office with a plan of their own. The closest thing they now have to a plan is this Rick Scott culture war manifesto today. But that seems to be more about winning elections than actually governing. Yeah, and look, I'd, I'd take a more biting approach, which is it raises the question of Republicans more interested in hatred or ignorance. I mean, that, if you look at the Rick Scott approach, if you look at Matt Schlapp's comments, the question is, are they truly ignorant of where our culture is and where our society is going? Or is there a hatred of, of people that are non-binary or LGBT? Is there a hatred of people of color? What is the issue that leading Republicans have today? That's a fair question. And look, Mehdi, I, I mean, I, I listened to your whole run-up, your whole intro, and I thought, boy, I'm kind of embarrassed that I was associated with what used to be a party of ideas, but today is no longer. As you mentioned, it's a party without a platform. Mitch McConnell has no policy agenda. Rick Scott is somebody who is desperate to find a lane to run for president, but can't find that lane. And so he's going to continue to try to do what he does. Matt Schlapp admitted this week, this is not a conservative conference anymore. CPAC is not about conservatism. It's about the American first populist grievance agenda that Donald Trump introduced to the party and the party widely adopted. And to be fair to Rick Scott, there is one policy in his uh, grab bag list of grievances, and it's a weird one. He calls for income tax increases on every American, uh, you know, referring back to the Mitt Romney 47 percent stuff, the moocher stuff that Americans do. Poor Americans don't pay enough tax, which if Democrats are smart, they'd jump on and say, we want higher taxes for the wealthy. Rick Scott and the Republicans want higher taxes on everyone. Yeah. Yeah, but you know what's in that Rick Scott thing? And this is, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because this is fascinating. Look, 20 years ago, Republicans would have said a dollar earned is a dollar earned and everybody should pay the same tax on that. Where the Republican Party is today is actually a war on income inequality or at least the ability to elevate income inequality, if you will. Rick Scott is happy to pursue the kind of rich Republican corporate America agenda as he also pursues the culture wars. And at the end of the day, what Republicans have missed, what they have absolutely missed, is if you're trying to level the playing field, at least invest in ladders of opportunity for people of all walks of life, education, healthcare, careers, transportation. Where is the Republican agenda there? Because if you tell me that you care about people and the ladders of opportunity being provided to everybody, then I'll listen to you on equity within the tax code. But if you start with tax codes, you've lost people. Yeah, I mean, it's so bizarre on so many levels. And let's talk about Rick Scott for a moment, because one of the big narratives before this year's CPAC is the emerging rivalry, supposedly, between Trump and fellow Florida man Ron DeSantis, the governor. Yeah. But Rick Scott's Senate term is up in 2024. He has the secret source that's won him three tight races in Florida, that secret source being $64 million of his own money that he poured into yeah. those campaigns. Is he the Florida man we should be watching out for, really? No. No, look, not just in Florida, but nationwide in the Republican Party. I mean this, including Donald Trump. It's Ron DeSantis and everybody else. Ron DeSantis is the future of the party. And what you're seeing from Rick Scott and frankly, Marco Rubio, who has a very competitive race against Val Demings, 
is they're two and three out of three in Florida politics. They're afterthoughts in Florida politics. This state, the Republican Party in the state of Florida belongs to Ron DeSantis, and I think the party nationwide does as well. The question is, there's only one person that can stop Ron DeSantis, and it's Donald Trump if he decides to enter the 2024 race. Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis race always reminds me of Henry Kissinger on the Iran-Iraq war. I hope they both lose, I think he famously said. Um, I have to ask about Mitch McConnell in all of this, because he hasn't always been uh, eye-to-eye with the Trump wing of the party. Have a listen to what Senator Lindsey Graham said last month. If you want to be a Republican leader uh, in the House or the Senate, you have to have a working relationship with President Donald Trump. He's the most consequential Republican since Ronald Reagan. But here's the question. Can Senator McConnell effectively work with the leader of the Republican Party, Donald Trump? I'm not going to vote for anybody that can't have a working relationship with President Trump. Is this Scott plan, David, just another part, another attack on McConnell and the future of his leadership in the Senate? Yeah, look, Mitch McConnell has never been a perfect fit with Donald Trump, but neither was Lindsey Graham, neither has been Rick Scott. But they all acquiesced to Donald Trump's leadership until somebody beats him, until somebody overtakes him in the race. And that's where you see Lindsey Graham and Rick Scott, Mitch McConnell, frankly, flirting with the idea of how to unset Donald Trump. But until it happens, it's not there. Lindsey Graham's right. Donald Trump is the leader until somebody beats him or until Donald Trump steps back. And here's what's going to happen when Donald Trump steps back. All of those voices, Lindsey Graham, Mitch McConnell, Rick Scott, Kevin McCarthy, they're going to tell you that they never really believed in Donald Trump anyway. And we're going to see the true soul of the Republican Party come out in a way we've never seen it, even in these last five years of Donald Trump. And David, just on CPAC, which was always a bit of a fringe circus conference, and yet it's really crazy now where you have Proud Boys more welcome there than long-standing conservatives, anti-Trump yeah. conservatives like Mona Charon, who was escorted out in 2018. This is the right incubator of new ideas. Yeah, look, you're at CPAC. You're going to see the crazy, and you're going to see the conservative, and the crazy is going to win out. Look, I, I think Matt Schlappen saying this is no longer the conservative movement was the most telling statement this week. This is. He calls it America first, it's populism, it's grievance. But at the end of the day, it's not principle-based. It, it is a cult of personality, not a party. And the danger in that is, look, Republicans are in a good position right now because they get to be opposed to anything Democrats do. But what we saw in 18 when they lost their shirts at the election, what we saw in 20 when they lost their shirts at the election, is when you actually have the reins of power in America and you stand for nothing, you lose. So they might win on an opposition platform in 22, but it's not an opposition platform that's going to sustain them for decades to come. The majority of the country wants to see America work and the government work. That's not what Republicans are offering them right now. In 2014, Russian President Vladimir Putin was not very popular among Republicans or Democrats. 
which made sense given that he's a somewhat murderous strongman with the nasty habit of invading his neighbors. This is, without question, our number one geopolitical foe. Breaking news, signs of a Russian invasion in Ukraine tonight. Since 2000, 25 journalists have died under mysterious circumstances. The Russian military campaign in Syria after a week of airstrikes now escalating dramatically to prop up Syrian President Assad. This chart shows Putin's net favorability among Republicans. That's the percentage of people who view him favorably minus the percent who view him unfavorably. You can see the net favorability begin to rise steadily through 2014 and 2015. And then, all of a sudden, in August 2016, it spikes. By December 2016, the share of Republicans who saw Putin favorably had more than tripled. His popularity fell among Democrats, but by a much smaller margin. So what's going on here? And what does it mean for the United States' relationship with Russia? What I think you're seeing is two years of constant Republican propaganda about how Vladimir Putin is a strong leader. Putin decides what he wants to do, and he does it in half a day. He makes a decision, and he executes it quickly. Then everybody reacts. That's what you call a leader. People are looking at Putin as one who wrestles bears and drills for oil. They look at our president as one who wears mom jeans. What you see is just this Republican talking point that builds and builds and builds. It finally really hits a peak with Donald Trump. I think I would get along very well with him. I respect Putin. He's a strong leader. If he says great things about me, I'm going to say great things about him. I've already said he is really very much of a leader. I mean, you can say, oh, isn't that a terrible thing? He called him. I mean, the man has very strong control over a country. What we're seeing with Donald Trump is that he believes in the great man theory of history, both the great part of it and also the man part of it. He's a man who sees himself as a tough, decisive leader, authoritarian if necessary, but willing to do whatever it takes to push through what he thinks needs to be done. It looks to Vladimir Putin in Russia, someone who has made clear if you're a dissident and criticizes him, you may disappear. If you're someone in the public who isn't fully in support of him, you may lose your job. And he looks at them and thinks, that works. There's also a financial connection. Trump has had trouble getting loans from U.S. banks following his multiple bankruptcy filings since 1991. We know from a speech that his son, Donald Trump Jr., made in 2008 that Russian investors have played a big role in financing Trump projects ever since. Most wealthy Russian business people maintain warm relationships with Putin, who holds absolute power in the country. That means the investors who helped save Trump's business empire are likely to include several close Putin allies. We're in this extraordinary moment where a U.S. president is potentially financially beholden to an enemy country led by a dictator. Republican voters might be taking their cues from Trump when it comes to Putin, but Republican lawmakers are a different story. Vladimir Putin is a person who's killed, he's jailed and murdered journalists, uh, political opponents. Putin is an aggressor that does not share our interests. Vladimir uh, Putin um, is violating the sovereignty of neighboring countries. Um, it, it certainly appears that he is conducting in state-sponsored cyber attacks on what appears to be our political system. The Russians are undermining democracy throughout the entire world. They're taking land owned by others by force. They did hack into our political system. They're doing it to other political systems. Before he was Donald Trump's vice president, then-representative Mike Pence held a similar position. And now an increasingly antagonistic Russia has been rewarded for bullying and threatening its neighbors. Seven years later, he was singing a different tune. I think it's inarguable uh, that Vladimir Putin has been a stronger leader in his country than Barack Obama has been in this country. 
When Trump praises Putin, he's also flouting his party's long history of skepticism towards Russia. We think of Republicans and the, the kind of leader that they venerate is Ronald Reagan. They come back to Reagan again and again and again. I remember when Ronald Reagan was the president. He stood on principle standing up to the Soviet Union. Ronald Reagan reignited the American economy, rebuilt the military, bankrupted the Soviet Union, and defeated Soviet communism. And they come back to him because they think he won the Cold War and because they think he, he beat the Soviet Union. The march of freedom and democracy, which will leave Marxism-Leninism on the ash heap of history as it has left other tyrannies which stifle the freedom and muzzle the self-expression of the people. This is not just a break with Republicans on the Hill in 2016. This is a break with the last 30 years of Republican ideology, dating back to the president, Ronald Reagan, that they held up as a mere godlike figure. Tonight, Republicans are uniting against President Joe Biden and siding with a foreign autocrat, Vladimir Putin, as he is invading a sovereign and peaceful country. That in and of itself should be enough for all Americans to unite against Putin, but that is not what's happening. The leader of the Republican Party, Donald Trump, recently praised the brilliance of Putin's invasion while criticizing his successor in the White House. I went in yesterday and there was a television screen and I said, this is genius. Putin declares a big portion of the Ukraine, of Ukraine. Putin declares it as independent. Oh, that's wonderful. So Putin is now saying it's independent, a large section of Ukraine. I said, how smart is that? And he's going to go in and be a peacekeeper. That's the strongest peace force. We could use that on our southern border. And you know what the response was from Biden? There was no response. They didn't have one for that. Now it's very sad. Very you, sad. House Republicans piled on, tweeting this photo of President Biden walking out of the East Room of the White House yesterday afternoon after he announced sanctions against Russia and defensive military operations. Those House Republicans captioned it, quote, this is what weakness on the world stage looks like. To be clear, Biden is literally just walking away from the podium. Former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo echoed that critique, talking about Biden's dealings with Putin in an interview on C-SPAN. They took a fifth of the country under President Obama when Biden was vice president. I am and President Biden has now told him you can make a minor incursion into the country and that'll all be square and just uh, just spiffy by me. Those are those are signs of feebleness, signs of weakness. And those are the kind of things that never happened during our four years. Feebleness and weakness. That is how he characterized the sitting president of the United States. And here is his very favorable assessment last week of Vladimir Putin. Very shrewd, very capable. I have enormous respect for him. I've been criticized for saying that. Uh, no, I have enormous respect for him. Uh, he was also an interlocutor that was uh, always well-informed and deeply clear about what Russian interests were. I, I appreciated that. Uh, it required the same from us, from me, from my team. We had to be equally prepared and equally protective of the interests that matter to the United States. He is very savvy, very shrewd. Yesterday, Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina told the press that he thinks Biden has been outmatched by Putin. To President Biden, you said a couple of years ago that Putin does not want you to win. 
because you're the only person that could go toe-to-toe with him. Well, right now, Mr. President, you're playing footsie with Putin and you're losing. Here's walking all over you and our allies. We're seeing this message repeated all the way down to Republican candidates for office. Ohio Republican Senate hopeful J.D. Vance has been railing against Biden for focusing on what he says is the wrong border. I think it's ridiculous that we're focused on this border in Ukraine. Uh, I don't I got to be honest with you. I don't really care what happens to Ukraine one way or another. I do care about the fact that in my community right now, the leading cause of death among 18 to 45 year olds is Mexican fentanyl that's coming across the southern border. I'm sick of Joe Biden focusing on the border of a country I don't care about while he lets the border of his own country become a total war zone. And in New York, a Republican candidate for Congress is speaking positively about the Russian autocrat, tweeting, quote, Putin protects the church, tradition and Russian culture to an extent that globalists cannot accept. He added that we deal with far worse governments regularly. Of course, all of these Republicans are being supported by their friends at Fox News. Tucker Carlson has been especially persistent in pushing the anti-Biden, pro-Russia message. Last night, he asked his audience why they're following Democrats' orders to hate Vladimir Putin. Since the day that Donald Trump became president, Democrats in Washington have told you you have a patriotic duty to hate Vladimir Putin. It's not a suggestion, it's a mandate. Anything less than hatred for Putin is treason. It might be worth asking yourself, since it is getting pretty serious, what is this really about? Why do I hate Putin so much? Has Putin ever called me a racist? Has he threatened to get me fired for disagreeing with him? Has he shipped every middle-class job in my town to Russia? Did he manufacture a worldwide pandemic that wrecked my business and kept me indoors for two years? Now, let's be clear about who Vladimir Putin is exactly, this guy who Republicans are praising for his strength and his smarts. Putin is an authoritarian ruler who has kept himself in power for over two decades using anti-democratic tactics. He has prevented elections in Russia from being free and fair. He does not allow freedom of the press. He has overseen the passing of numerous laws that allow for censorship and surveillance of journalists who are sometimes threatened, attacked, or even killed. Vladimir Putin does not treat dissenters kindly. He silences them, like opposition leader Alexei Navalny, who was arrested and thrown in jail last year. You may remember a former Russian intelligence officer accused of being a double agent for Britain was poisoned in 2018. Human rights abuses are widespread in Russia. LGBTQ people are often targeted with legislation and with violence. Last year, Putin signed a constitutional amendment outlawing same-sex marriage and banning transgender people from adopting children. But even if you put all of that aside, there should be no doubt that Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine is abominable. And yet many Republicans are siding with him, and not just because they hate Joe Biden and want to oppose everything he says or does. They actually seem to share certain anti-democratic values with Vladimir Putin. They want our elections to be less free. They target the trans community. They'd prefer we had less freedom of the press. The shocking thing is when these Republicans look at Russia, its repression and flouting of democratic norms and restriction of essential freedoms, when they look at all that, they may not see a cautionary tale, but an aspirational one.
We've just heard clips today, starting with the Rachel Maddow show discussing the strongman philosophy ascendant in the GOP. The Slate Political Gab Fest looked at the internal debate among Republicans on how to address the January 6th insurrection. The Al Franken podcast explained how the fringes of the GOP worked to make themselves the mainstream of the party. The broadcast explained Pence rejecting Trump's take on January 6th, while the GOP rejected Cheney, Kinzinger, and the concept of presidential debates. The Mehdi Hassan show looked at Rick Scott's talking points and the intellectual bankruptcy of CPAC. Vox, in a video from 2017, explained the sudden shift in approval for Vladimir Putin among Republicans, and All In with Chris Hayes explained the far-right's response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard bonus clips from The Brian Lehrer Show looking at methods of mass radicalization by the far-right, and In the Thick following up on the GOP gaslighting the events of January 6th. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com support or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now I just want to finish up today's episode with a few thoughts. You know, we just heard a whole episode about the profound transformation of a political party and how the fringe managed to take over the party, right? And so I thought I would share some thoughts that I've had recently about the dynamics at play of the left. Now, going back to 2016, I learned a new term then, sheepdogging. And I learned this from a show that was criticizing Bernie Sanders. They had been a supporter of his when he was running in the primary, but they began to criticize him for encouraging his supporters to vote in the general election for the ultimate winner of the primary campaign. And so the term sheepdogging refers to the idea of sort of getting a group of people excited, getting them to follow you and then guiding them sort of somewhere else. So Bernie Sanders, this show was suggesting, could have guided his followers into the Green Party movement, or could have started a totally separate party, but instead he corralled these Bernie Sanders-supporting progressives into the Democratic Party, away from the Green Party or anywhere else. And for some reason, it was until this past week when I just had a bit of a brain flash. The only thing I can think of is that so much of the world these days feels bizarro, feels like everything is its own opposite. Everyone is sort of saying the exact same thing about their political opponents, but they mean something completely diametrically opposed to the other. So we have this sort of bizarre world effect, which got me thinking about sheepdogging, or I don't know, it came to mind somehow. And I realized that, you know, here's a counterpoint about sheepdogging people into the Democratic Party, which, you know, this commentator uh, was very much opposed to. Think about how the Green Party and its supporters could just as easily be said to be sheepdogging progressives away from power toward disempowerment. If you just take the party labels off of it, that really is what it comes down to. The Democratic Party as an institution in this country has political power. 
the Green Party, as an institution in this country, does not have any political power. And so if you have people, and they're excited, and they're politically engaged, and you want to corral them somewhere, would you want to corral them into the entity that has power or into the entity that doesn't have power? And think about it this way. If I were a neoliberal Democrat looking to fend off the far left, I would be grateful for the existence of the Green Party every day and think that if it didn't already exist, then we would be smart to invent it because it does such a good job of corralling the most progressive people in the country away from power where they are not a threat so that the neoliberals can go about their merry way, implementing their deeply moderate or conservative economic and other policies without worrying about those progressives getting in the way because they have no power. They're not even within the institution that has power. And if you have any doubts that taking radical energy into the party structure can fundamentally change the party and the power it wields, all you need to do is look at the Republicans from 2010 onward. If you had your doubts before that, I would consider it very understandable. If you have your doubts after that, it seems like you have not been paying attention. But look, if you still find the idea of working within the Democratic Party structure to be distasteful, or you know you want to debate with someone who does feel that way, try this reframing on for size. In a parliamentary system, there is room for many minor parties who are capable of getting elected in small percentages. And the way these minor parties exercise their power is by forming coalition governments with other parties, none of which won the election outright. So, for instance, New Zealand has that very popular prime minister who got famous by handling the pandemic so well, but they're only in power because the Green Party of New Zealand is in a coalition with the prime minister's party. So the Green Party isn't just a fringe party, and they're certainly not out of power. They are in a position to exert power within the coalition and make demands for more progressive policies in exchange for their support within the coalition. In the U.S., we have a two-party system, which gives the impression that no fringe perspectives can gain traction. But I argue that that is an illusion. A better way of understanding our two parties would be that of two permanent coalitions— if we lived in a parliamentary system, Bernie Sanders, Nancy Pelosi, and Joe Manchin would very likely exist within three separate caucuses. And then those three separate parties that they caucus with would ultimately end up entering into a coalition with each other. Same with Mitt Romney and Ted Cruz on the Republican side. They don't belong in the same party, but they do belong in the same coalition. So under this reframing understanding that we do live in something much more akin to a parliamentary system than we usually think, anyone who is choosing to be on the outside looking to gain power for a true third party in the U.S. is effectively removing themselves from the political structure entirely, which they wouldn't do if they lived in New Zealand. They'd be part of the New Zealand Green Party and would be part of the governing coalition, whereas here they voluntarily leave themselves outside the gates, allowing the Democratic Party, as a coalition, to become even more conservative due in part to their absence. They are the ones who could make the Democratic Party more progressive, 
but they say, no, 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 we're going to stay outside. So for those of us wanting to remake American politics in our own image, we could give no greater gift to the neoliberal powers that be within the democratic establishment than to voluntarily disempower ourselves, and even worse, sheepdog our friends and allies in that same direction. And to keep it short, the one thing I will say about the futility of trying to build a third party in America is that it is structural. If you want a third party to exist, you want the Green Party to exist and have power in America, there's a decent chance you believe in structural racism. There's also a decent chance you believe in structural patriarchy. Well, if you can understand that structure, understand that the forces laid out against third parties in America are also structural. They are insurmountable without fundamentally changing those structures. So if you want a third party, you might as well get into power first within the only entity that has power that is even vaguely on your side, which is the Democratic Party, and then work to fundamentally change the structure of our election system. Then, once the structures have been changed, you can advocate for a third party, no problem. And I'll be right there with you. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Scott, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. And thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com support through our Patreon or right inside the Apple Podcasts app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes, in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes, all through your regular podcast player. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.